Um, and so we're going to dive back into that today. And I, I want to start with this passage from uh, Melville's novel. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on that eternal war since the world began. Consider all this and then turn to the green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land, and do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of a half-known life. God keep thee. Moby Dick uh, is probably one of the most ambitious novels in the American literary canon. Um, and while its main character, sort of a character study in some ways uh, on someone that's besieged by regret and loss and anger and obsession, uh, but it also explores sort of the subtle parts of the human experience, love, compassion, hope, all those kinds of things. Um, that's just a preview. You should all go read the book, thus in talking about Moby Dick. Um, but you should all go read it. It really has everything you need. Um, but this passage points out what was probably um, a good way for us to understand how for most of human history, and probably still, we have come to conceive of the water, or of the ocean particularly, um, that it is this place that is filled with incredible resources, but it is always just beyond us. Uh, we can't breathe in it, we can't walk in it. Uh, even what we know about gravity is betrayed by the way things move in water. Um, and ironically, it's this immovable object, but we can't even hold it because as soon as you try to pick it up, it slips through your hands. Um, and since the beginning of time, the ocean has sort of been seen in this kind of way, this sort of deep, uh, chaotic, scary kind of place, right, in opposition to the sky. So in the beginning, in most creation narratives, we have a splitting of the sky and the ocean, and so the sky represents this place where there is wonder and magic and hope and from the sky comes the rain for the crops and the wind for our sails and we look into the stars and into the moon and we dream about places that we can go and the things that we can be and then in opposition to that is the ocean the deep this dark menacing kind of place um, and it's this the ocean is is just this wonderful metaphor for so many things right it's impenetrable Right? But in this sort of wonderful twist of fate, the way in which it demonstrates its fear to you is by reflecting your face back at you. Right? When you look in the water, what you see is yourself. So whatever deep fear or anger or sadness or whatever you have is somehow sent in and then projected back. Right? It is this great unknown. It is this great unknown, the deep. And the deep is this place where all of the chaos of the beginning of the world exists, right? We have this in the creation story. Um, and while, you know, exploration have allowed us to understand what's going on in the ocean in, in the sort of our contemporary moments, and we can see cities of coral and all the resources that the ocean gives us, 
it still has this place of mystery to us, right? How many of you are afraid of animals that live in the ocean? Yeah, there's like six of them, um, right? And even when you go and talk to a little kid, right, you go to a lake and you say, what are you afraid of? Sharks. But I doubt you'd ever talk to a little kid and say, are you afraid of the grizzly bears that live in your house? Probably not. They probably get that. But the water is this place that is just so mysterious to us. We don't know what's happening because we can't see below it. So when we read in Genesis that the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water, we might be missing out on the fullness of that statement because of where we live now, right? Because we know more about the oceans than we used to. But for the first century, for the people that were hearing the Gospels for the first time, any references to the ocean were references to this place of chaos and uncertainty. The great thing about the creation of the world, though, is that the spirit of the Lord that hovers over the water um, is also the one who can control the chaos. And so not only is the deep this place where the great leviathans exist, right, guarding the gates to Shoal and all these kinds of imagery, right, um, in a number of traditions, the, the idea is that the devil is in the water. Um, and we have all this sort of we have all this sort of uh, mysteriousness that's associated with the ocean um, and the deep. And yet in the story of Genesis, we're reminded that God himself hovers over the water and keeps things in place, right? That he keeps chaos at bay. But it's even more than that. Not only does he keep chaos at bay, he can control it, right? How many of you know the story of Jonah and the whale, right? Right? God can call forth leviathans at his command and use them how he sees fit. God can also use the waters to show us his bounty, right? Throw your nets over here and you pull up uh, more than you need. He can also use the oceans to mock the world, right? There's this wonderful passage where Jesus pulls his coin from a fish's mouth as if to say, because you can control taxation policies, that's nothing compared to what I can create or destroy. And so not only does God hover over the chaos, keeping it at bay, but he himself is the Lord of that space as well. He is the one that can control and protect. Um, he is the one that can use the monsters of the deep for his own purposes. He is the one that uses his creation to mock us when we think we have everything put into place. So all of that is to say, when you see water in the Gospels, you want to make sure that you're paying attention because it's one of God's favorite metaphors. Right, for all the things it can do. So let's hop into John's gospel, that passage we looked at today. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add, I'm not going to add, I'm going to take a look at the other gospels as well because they all have some version of this story. And when we take a look at them all together, we start to see the importance of this, uh, of this story of Jesus walking on water for the, for the people of the church um, as it was beginning. Um, we'll start with John, and then we'll go to Matthew. So I'm going to read from John uh, 6.16. Uh, again, we heard it already, but I want us to, to pay attention to a couple things here. Um, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. 
And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. So in this, in John's telling of the story, we have a real focus. Um, one way to think about this is we have a real focus on this question of who do you say that I am, right? Who is Jesus in this story that we see in John's gospel? Um, and what we see is we have this re we're recalling the audience back to that first place in Genesis, right? That God was hovering over the waters. Um, and we see references to the wind, and we see references to all these things that are traditionally associated with the Spirit of God um, and the kind of power that God has. Um, and what's fascinating about this moment, when we think about it being a sort of a callback to the Gospels for the people that would have been hearing this for the first time, is that it would have been something that would have been profoundly telling those audience members that this is God, right? Who does this kind of thing is the question, right? Who walks on water? The question is, who does this kind of thing? And the answer, of course, is God does this kind of thing, right? Oftentimes we wonder why there aren't passages in the Bible where, like, Jesus has a name tag and walks around and says, hi, I'm Yahweh <laughs> in flesh. Um, have it, but we have passages like this. How many of you ever watched those? We, this summer we started watching those superhero movies with our kids. You guys watch those, right? You guys know what those are? Okay, um, <laughs> hmm. uh, so I'll pretend that some of you sh shook your heads, yes. Um, so we started watching these superhero movies, and they all have this like moment at the end of the movie where they realize that they're like, have a superpowers, right? And everybody gets it, and they're like, oh wow, this guy's Iron Man, or this guy's Iron Girl, or whatever. Um, but at no point when you're seeing that part of the movie do you ever go, I don't get it. I don't get it. He's got like a superpower, I don't get it. Right, you get it, you go, oh yeah, he has a superpower. So I think sometimes because we aren't living in the first century, that when we hear a story about Jesus walking on the water, we go, I don't get it. Why didn't he just like go in a boat? I don't get it. Uh, but the first century, people would have heard, oh wow, you know who walks on water? the spirit of the Lord, new creation, all these images would have popped in their head and they would have said, wow, this is pretty profound. This seems like this Jesus guy is pretty well connected to Yahweh. I wonder what this means. Um, but we are a little bit farther removed from that, so we kind of go, walking on water? That seems inefficient. Um, uh, so let's, let's add to this, though, that we have, uh, in Matthew's gospel, we have a similar telling of the story, but there's a little bit of a different emphasis placed on it because we add in some components. So if you could turn with me uh, to Matthew 14, 22. That's the whole sec section of the story, and I'm just going to read some parts of it here. In Matthew's gospel, we tell the story this way. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, don't be afraid. I want to pause for a moment because I love the way it says this. It is a ghost, they cried out in fear. Um, and I just have this image of these guys on these, like, these boats were really tiny, right? They didn't do too much. And I just have this image of all these guys starting to like panic and the boats start shaking, right? Have you ever been in this where you start to panic with your friends and things just get like worse, they start compounding? And so now the boat is shaking, they're falling all over each other. And Jesus is like, oh my, 
it's me. And I don't, I don't read this as like he's like beckoning to them with his wonderful voice. It's more of like he just put his head on the table like, oh my, mm, it is me. And they kind of stop moving the boat just because they, they realize how silly they're acting. That's how I read it. I don't know if that's in the Greek. Um, so he says to them, it's me, take heart, don't be afraid. And Peter answered to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those on the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So what we have here in Matthew's gospel telling of this story is we have the same sort of features as in John's, right? This, it begins with this idea of Jesus is like the Spirit of the Lord that hovers over the face of the ocean, that Jesus is the one who controls and conquers and uh, cares for us in the midst of chaos. But then we have this extra element added, which is the story of Peter um, and Peter getting out on the water. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk about uh, in this passage that I think are really important. Um, first, the way that I grew up hearing this story was that Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on water because somehow he and then starts to sink because somehow he doubts the nature of who Jesus is or something like this. Um, and for a long time, that was how I understood the story. It's like, if you have more faith um, in Jesus, you can walk on water, um, which seems good. I went through a Pentecostal phase when I was in college, and there may have been a time when I tried to do something like this, where I was like, I'm going to try and walk on water. Um, I can't be positive that I did not. Um, I can't be positive that I did not, in fact, walk on water. Um, but I kind of, that's how I grew up thinking about this. And, and as I've gotten older um, and been around more, particularly young people, um, and the kind of struggles they have with how they, how they see themselves in the world and how they think God views them, um, this story has sort of been on my mind for years now because one of the things that's really interesting is it doesn't seem that, that Peter doubts who Jesus is at all. Right? He just says, if you're God... Then I'll come to you. He says, okay, I'm God. And Peter's like, great. Hops out of the boat and starts walking across water. And so then it says it start, he starts sinking, which then leads us to the question of, like, what makes him start sinking? What makes him start sinking? He's, he's pretty sure that this guy's God. What's going on here? Um, and I think what's going on here is that what goes on for so many of us, which is... Um, we don't actually perceive ourselves as the kind of people that could walk on water. And I'm going to unpack that in a second. Um, but I want to, there's a phrase in here that says the fourth watch. Does anyone, that time of day is probably between like 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so the dawn of a new day. Um, and so I have this, when I read this passage now, I have this beautiful image of the sun starting to come up, um, and Peter gets out on the water, and he sees Jesus, and he starts to walk toward him, and he's excited. I, and I think it would be exciting to walk on water. Yes, everyone, anyone ever just like skied before? That's pretty exciting. Can you imagine just doing that with no boat and no skis? Um, like that would be pretty exciting. Um, and that's how you tie jokes into the bulletin that you haven't seen until this morning. Um, so, <laughs> just look at it. Look at this. Um, so, so, so there, he's walking on this water and he's looking at Jesus. And then 
I have this image of for a moment he looks down and looks at what he's doing. And you know what he sees? He sees Peter in the water. And then that's when he starts to sink. Because fundamentally, he can't possibly imagine that he's the kind of person that can do such a thing. And I think for uh, many of us, that's actually how we sort of live our lives, is in this state of sort of, uh, we have faith in God, but one of the things that we forget is that God has quite a lot of faith in us. Um, and this is this really fine point of the Christian experience, and so I want to sort of go slow here, um, is that we are not by any means perfect, um, but we are also not so flawed that we are unusable. And this is the kind of thing uh, that's going on in the story, right? Is that we are, um, that Peter knows who he is and all the kinds of ways in which he fails and can't possibly imagine getting over to Jesus in this sort of amazing way, that God could somehow use him in this kind of way. Um, but there's also this moment of when you experience the sort of awesome power of who God is, that can also be incredibly intimidating, right? Has anyone ever had that experience? Um, I often experience it when I'm in the, in the mountains and I realize how tiny I am. Um, and, and we have those moments too, and those are equally frightening, right? And so in some ways, this story is this wonderful reminder that we sort of exist in this space between um, our own despair of who we are and the sort of incredible majesty of who Jesus is and who God is. And that's kind of the human experience is trying to live in that middle space that requires both humility and acceptance that you are loved. And that's an incredibly challenging place to be. Yes, we are sinners and we are sick and we are finite and we are broken. And some of us are bullies and we are cowards and we are fickle and we are foolish and we lust and we hate and we are prideful, and we are weak-willed, and we are lost in the deep, but we are also the point. And that's the thing I think we often forget, is that we are the point of the story, right? Creation, we were put into the garden because God wanted to love us. Um, and sometimes we forget that. And so when we get to a moment in the Gospels, in the telling of our story, where we see someone like Peter trying to walk on water, I can't help but think that this is a story to remind us the challenge of living into the reality that we are finite and humble things, but we are well-loved things. That our faith exists in this space between despair and hope, and it's this incredibly fine line, but it has to be, because it's only on that fine line that you can walk on water, right? So we live in the space between trying to understand that we are not perfect so that we don't become prideful and dismissive of what God can do in our lives. But we also have to balance not becoming so riddled with shame and guilt that we don't believe that we are the kind of people that can be loved. And this is the sort of story that's happening here. So let's sort of tie this up here. One of the things that we wanted to do by reading the Gospels backwards was to think about how do all of these stories work together in order to make sense of why the climax of the Gospels is the crucifixion and the resurrection. Why is that the point of the Gospel? Um, 
And over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about recommending movies, and so, so I thought I would recommend a movie. Um, anybody ever seen that movie, The Sixth Sense? Have you guys seen it? They're all ghosts. <laughs> um, but look, there's a statute of limitations on films. It's like 20 years old now, so tough break. Um, but what I like about that movie is the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, that was awesome. But that's not really the part that's so awesome. The part that's so awesome is you go back and you look at all the scenes and you realize, oh my gosh, nobody ever does anything that doesn't work for the end of the movie. Um, and in some ways, this is sort of what's going on in, in, uh, when we read the Gospels in reverse, is that we are watching the apostles particularly being given all of these clues and all these stories about who Jesus is. And the truth of the matter is, is that they don't have the advantage of 2,500 years, a lot of churches, a number of commentaries, and a bunch of resources to figure out what this all means. They just have these stories, and they're hearing them for the first time, and it's pretty challenging to figure out what all of this stuff means when you put it together. And so, when we hear this story, and we say, oh man, we can look at this now and say, yeah, God is, Jesus is reminding the disciples that he is God, He's calling them to believe in the kind of trust and faith he has in them. And we can see all of that from our vantage point. But that would have been really hard for them to see. And so what I want you to imagine now is that, that time in the, the film where we fade to sepia. And we're flashing back. And we're putting all the clues together. And we're getting to the end of the gospel and saying, oh my goodness, this all makes sense now. So, um, turn with me to the end of John's gospel. Uh, chapter 21 verses 4 through 8. So, Jesus gets crucified. And after three days, he rises from the dead. And he rises from the dead as a person. This is importante. Uh, he rises as a person with scars and flesh and bones and all of these kinds of things. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but no one thought that that was how things were supposed to work. We'll just say that, okay? What was supposed to happen is God comes down on like some kind of like, I don't know, contemporary example, a Hummer with a lot of guns, kills everyone, we have a big party, look, the good guys won, and that's what everyone's perception was. That's not what happens. In fact, it's just this guy, he goes around and does these miracles, he gets arrested, he gets, you know, faulty claims are lobbied against him, he gets killed, he rises from the dead as a dude still a guy. No one thought that this is how things were supposed to work. And so we get to the end of the movie, and Jesus starts to put all these clues together for folks. So if we take a look at John chapter uh, 21, verses 4 through 8, this is a story where Jesus cast the nets into the water, right? And they pulled up all of his bounty, right? So into the chaos, don't forget that I am the one that provides you with everything that you need. Okay, yeah, that's good. That makes sense. That makes sense now when I think about all the miracles and all the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and the 12,000. I have a hunch they probably just stopped writing those stories because I bet he was just feeding everybody all the time. It seems like kind of his thing, right? I get it now. You are the one who, in the midst of all this chaos, gives us bounty. Okay, I'm, this is starting to work here. And then uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. This is where Jesus reinstates Peter, right? And it's a reminder that, look, no matter what you do, no matter how far you go away from me, I am not going to abandon you. 
which I love that he has to remind them of this after he just got crucified and rose from the dead. Like, he has to continually remind them, I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing you can do that's going to, you're never going to be away from me. I will always come running back and pull you in. Right? And so he does this incredible thing where he reinstates Peter in this beautiful symbol of asking him three times that correspond to the times that he denied him. This beautiful sort of thing. And then in John verses 20, chapter 20, verses 26 through 29, this is the part I want to finish on big. This story is probably, to me, the climax of the Gospels. This is the story of Thomas, right? And what do we, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear Thomas? What word? Doubting. Yeah, that's how I grew up hearing about doubting Thomas, right? And again, it was another one of these stories like, Thomas just had a real difficulty believing in things, <laughs> right? And it's like this... So what we know of Thomas is this. He gave up everything and followed this guy around. It doesn't seem to be a doubter to me. What it feels like is that moment when you believe in something so strongly and then you find out that it's a sham. And this is where we find Thomas. You told me we weren't going to be abandoned and that the kingdom would come in its fullness and that you would love us and that we would be taken care of and you're dead. This is a joke. I've given my life for a joke. Thomas is a little bit different, right? So he goes to Thomas, and what does he, what does he do? You guys remember? He has him touch him, right? He has him touch him. And this is the moment in the movie when you realize none of the people have touched in the entire movie. They all have been ghosts. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant. There's no way M. Night Shyamalan could make a bad movie. Um... <laughs> This is the point when it all comes together, right? He says, touch me. Put your fingers in my sides and in my scars. And I think, I think the reason that he does that is to say, Thomas, Thomas, you've always been the point. This mortal coil, this humanness, it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. This was my plan. I created you because I loved you, right? The way that the kingdom is going to be brought about is by people with this finite, disintegrating, human meat stuff. And that's okay. It's okay. In fact, it's so okay that I came like this. And so Thomas touches his scars. And I love this story because I think it reminds us that there are things that we just can't know, right? I don't think that Thomas missed the point. I think he couldn't have imagined what was going on. And sometimes I think I have a hunch I'm going to go out on a limb. I think sometimes in our lives we can't figure it out. And we don't know what the end looks like. We don't even know what the next day looks like. I very seldom know what the next 10 minutes looks like. And we're stumbling around trying to figure out how to exist in this world. And part of the problem is, is that we chalk up all of our choices and our mistakes and everything to this mess that we call humanity. And if only we could get rid of that. And at the end of the Gospels, Jesus comes back and says, no, I don't want to get rid of that. I made that. I love that. I love you. And so sometimes I think, again, I'm going out on a limb. Um, 
I think we just don't know. And you have a couple options when you don't know what's coming next, right? You can either just give up, right? Become prideful or prideful is really just a fancy word for insecure. Um, and you can try to figure out how to run your own life. Or you can become delusional. Oh, things will get, get better someday. I don't know when. I'm certainly not going to do anything about it. Uh, but someday they'll get better. Or you can live in that moment when Peter gets out of the boat, which is in faith, right? That I believe that I'm the kind of person that God can use. And faith is this, such this fine line between hope and despair. And it's the call of the Christian to live like that. Um, in the coming weeks, we're going to continue to sort of wrestle with these elephants, right? These issues that sort of haunt us and challenge us. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do today was to sort of stop and pause for a moment and return to the Gospel of John to say, to figure out how we have to deal with an issue requires us to understand the kind of people that we're supposed to be. What kind of character qualities, what kind of attitudes does the follower have to have in order to confront all the world has to throw at us? And I think um, what I want to leave us with today is that you have to believe that you are capable of being loved. And things that are loved are highly regarded. And things that are highly regarded are used. And I think for some of us, that's not very easy for us to believe, that you are loved, that you are highly regarded, and as such, you will be well used. Right? Um, there's a uh, moment uh, in the, the telling in Matthew's story about Jesus walking on water, and it ends with them being on the boat. And it says, they praised him and said, surely you are the son of God, right? And that's, that's good. That's a good thing for them to say. It also is a reminder that they aren't quite getting it, right? And sometimes we're not going to get it. We're not going to be able to figure out what it means to be well-loved and how to live into that. That's a tough thing to do for most of us. And so we return to those really simple things that surely you are the son of man. Surely, Jesus, you are God. And if we can return to that, then it puts us at least in the right spot to uh, start to hear from God as to how he wants to use us, right? But the Gospels ultimately are not an argument about who God is. is not a case study or a demonstration of why you should believe in God. That's assumed by the gospel writers. The gospels are an argument for can you see creation the way that God does? And if you do, that will inform the way that you live. And so how does God see us, church? He sees us as beautifully broken vessels who are the only plan that he came up with for how to bring about his kingdom. He didn't make a mistake by creating any of us. He loves us and he wants to use us.
And the Gospels call us to think about what does it mean to be people of God. And so as we go into these next few weeks thinking about different elephants and issues that we face in our, in our culture, we have to come back to that primary first position. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And it means that we know that we are loved. And from that love, we can be used. And in our humility, we can be used quite well. I'm going to close with a prayer. If you want to close your eyes, think about water. New community. May the God that is in the fire and the God that is in the flood meet you as the God that is in the wind a powerful voice that reminds us that he is our rock and our foundation. Not so that we will have a firm place to dwell in our shame and insecurity, but rather God is an island in a sea of chaos, and he calls to us to move to him over the chaos toward him. New community, may you go this week remembering that you are the point and walk on water if necessary. Amen.